chapter 27. Just a real quick recap for us. We've been, like I said, away a couple of weeks. For those of you who are just joining us, um, uh, the book of Job is quite possibly, probably taking place um, around the time of Abraham. And it's important to know, especially again as we continue to study through these, um, these chapters, going back to chapter 1 when we look at the fact that the Lord records for us the fact that from his own words that Job was a man that was blameless and upright, fearing God and turning from evil. He was one that was greatly respected, the, even pointing out like the greatest man in, in the area at the time. He loved the Lord. He served the Lord. But um, as, we, as we mentioned, and uh, the, to get us to where we are in the, in the story here, Satan challenges God. He said, God said, look at my man, Job. Look at, look at him. Look at, he's, he's blameless. He, he serves me. He loves me. And Satan says, he loves you because of what you give him. He loves you because you bless him all the time. Take some of that stuff away. Let me, let me at him for a little bit. You'll find out. He doesn't love you, really. He just loves what he gets from you. And that's really the enemy's continually bringing that accusation to us. And again, that should be a challenge for all of us. Do we love God because of what he gives us, or do we love God because of who he is? And Job was a man, an upright man. He loved the Lord. He served the Lord. And, and, and God knew that. God allowed Satan to, to come against him. He put parameters around it. But as we know, he took away all of his possessions. All of his children were killed. And then he's struck with this horrible illness, um, boils all over his body. And he loses everything. And then basically all he has left now, I mean, his wife even tells him, curse God and die. And we, as we talked in that time, it was just, I believe, because her heart was so broken for him, you know, to see him suffering the way that he was. But really all he had left was his relationship with the Lord. And then his three friends come along and they continually keep telling him, what you need to do is confess the unrepented sin in your life because obviously you're a sinner. Obviously you're a, you're a hypocrite. Obviously you're living this life on the outside. You have this secret life that you need to repent of. And if you do, God will bless you again. The problem was that wasn't true about Job. And so we've gone through several chapters, as I said, three rounds with these guys, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And the last, in chapter 25, real short, short chapter, Bildad takes his last shot at him. And he brings up this idea, again, talking about how great and awesome and powerful God is. And in chapter 26, Job's response was, you're not telling me anything I don't know. I know who God is. I know how powerful he is. There, nothing you're telling me is new to me. And I think that as we look at that and we continue on with this, I think it's important to understand that there's really two, I guess, you, crisis points when it comes to faith. There are those that doubt the power of God, that, that just don't believe that God is who he says he is. They don't believe that he's the all-powerful, all-knowing all creator God. They doubt the power of God. And I think it's interesting as I've already been reading ahead a little bit in Mark on the weekends and coming up, you know, in, in, when we get into chapters five and six and the, you know, we, get, we come to that story of the disciples when they're out in the boat, Jesus sends them out, right? And he says, let's go to the other side. They're out in the boat, out in the middle of the lake. Jesus is asleep in the boat and this the, the horrible storm comes up. 
When you read the account in the different gospel records, you find that when they came to Jesus, they said different things to him, which makes sense. I mean, not all 12 of them came in unison and said the same thing. They're all panicking. And some of them said, Lord, we're perishing. And again, kind of coming, doubting the power of God. We're perishing. The, the other crisis point, though, is those that know the power of God. They don't doubt it. They know it, absolutely. And that causes some crisis of faith because then all of a sudden, like those other disciples said, they said, don't you care that we're perishing? We know that you're all powerful. We know that you could change this at any time. We know the problem is, I, it's, it appears as though you don't care about me. It appears as though you don't really love me. And I think that that's where we find Job in this as we look through that. His faith is solid. He knows who the true and living God is. He's just questioning, do you really love me? Because I don't understand. And that's what he keeps coming back to with, with these guys and, and to fight back with the argument. And I think it's, it's, it's kind of funny how it kind of plays itself out here because chapter 27 says, then Job continued his discourse and said, we're not going to hear any more from Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. It's like he's not even giving them a chance to get, I've heard enough from you guys. Or they could even be saying, what, what's the bother talking to you anymore? But we don't hear any more from them. We're going to, the next several chapters, don't know how many we'll get through tonight, um, but we're done with those three guys. We get one more, one more guy that jumps in at the end before the Lord closes the book for us. But So here we go. Then Job continued his discourse and said, as God lives, who has taken away my right, and the Almighty who has embittered my soul. He starts off with this, this oath. That's, that was common in that time. As God lives, that is basically saying, I'm calling God as my witness. Um, but it was a serious thing back then. It's not like when people today say, I swear to God. You know, you've come across people say, I swear to God, I swear to God. Don't do that. Don't do that. If you feel you need to say that, that, that speaks a lot about your character right up there. I, I tell, I'm, I'm telling the truth, man. I'm well, I'm assuming you're telling the truth. You don't need to tell me you're telling the truth. It's one of the dumbest questions. I'm getting on a rabbit trail here, but the dumbest question out there. Can I be honest with you? That, no, no, please lie to me. Anyway. So he's, 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 he's calling, you know, God is his witness here. Verse three, for as long as life is in me and the breath of God is in my nostrils. And I, I love that. And even we're saying thank you, thanking the Lord earlier. He understood even the breath that is in his nostrils is a gift from God. My lips certainly will not speak unjustly, nor will my tongue mutter deceit. Far be it from me that I should declare, that, that I should declare you right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. I hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach any of my days. Isn't it an awesome thing to have a clean conscience? I mean, Job can look these guys in the eye and say, I can't say that there is unrepentant sin in my life and hypocrisy in my life because I am living right before the Lord. If I were to do that, trying to somehow trick God into blessing me by saying something that's not true, 
He was a man of integrity, a man that could stand with there and look him right in the eye and his conscience totally clear. My heart does not reproach any of my days. I look back over that. Now, again, we've mentioned this. Job was not a perfect man. It wasn't like he was sinless in his life. But the point was that he recognized when there was sin and he had dealt with that. He had already repented. It was not because there was open sin, unrepentant, undealt with sin in his life that he was going through this. Verse 7, and verse 7 through the end of this chapter, I'm going to just read it through there and then we'll come back because it it ties all together. He says, may my enemy be as the wicked and my opponent be as the unjust. For for, For what is the hope of the godless when he is cut off? When God requires his life, will God hear his cry? When distress comes upon him? Will he take delight in the Almighty? Will he call on the Lord at all times? I will instruct you in the power of God. What is the Almighty? I will not conceal. Behold, all you have, all you have seen it. Why then do you act foolishly? And now he's going to start going into this and describing how God deals with ungodly people. And it might sound like a contradiction to some of the things he said before, but let's read through it and then I'll come back. This is the portion of a wicked man from God and the inheritance which tyrants receive from the Almighty. Though his sons are many, they are destined for the sword. They are destined for death, even if he has many children. And his descendants will not be satisfied with bread. His survivors will be buried because of the plague, and their widows will not be able to weep. Even their wives won't even cry for them. They're They're so wicked. Though he piles up silver like dust and prepares garments as plentiful as the clay, he may prepare it, But the just will wear it, and the innocent will divide the silver. He has built his house like a spider's web or as a hut which the watchman has made. He lies down rich, but never again. He opens his eyes, and it is no longer. Terror overtakes him like a flood. A tempest steals him away in the night. The east wind carries him away, and he is gone, for it twirls For it whirls him away from his place, for it will hurl at him without sparing. He will surely try to flee from its power. Men will clap their hands at him and will hiss him from his place. It sounds like all of a sudden he's come into agreement with them. But remember, Job has never argued with them that God ultimately deals with wicked people in a just way, as they should be dealt with. And he also says that that is common what happens. It's just not everyone. You can't just assume because someone's suffering that they're wicked or that someone is blessed because they're righteous. That was his whole point all along. But the point he's making here is he's calling down from verse 7. It says, may my enemy be as the wicked and my opponent be as the just. He's calling for justice in this way. The custom was at that time and still is in, in parts of the world where if you bring an accusation against someone that is found to be false, your punishment is that you would take the punishment that they would have received if they had been guilty. So if you bring an accusation that would require the death penalty, let's say you say that person murdered someone and da-da-da-da-da, and you bring that accusation, and they are found to be innocent, you would take their, their penalty upon yourself that if they were to be killed for that penalty. Make sense? So that's what he's saying. And then when he outlines all of this that he's saying, he said, you're telling me that it is because of my sin that all of this stuff has happened to me. 
be careful. Because I'm innocent, that means if this is the punishment I should receive, this is what will come upon you. Now, I, I say that, so how, what does that mean for us? Well, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. It's not up to us to make those determinations. We've talked often as we've moved through this study, if there is sin in someone's life, you know, the Bible tells us that we are to come along, restore such a one in a spirit of love and gentleness. Restoration is always the goal. But if we don't know, we are not to make assumptions. And I have, I have personally known several people who have been very hurt, very hurt by Christians and some of them well-meaning Christians who came along and said, the reason that you're dealing with, you're suffering from this is because of sin in your life or because of a lack of faith. That's the big one. You're dealing with this because you don't have enough faith. We have to be so careful not to judge and to make determinations. James never sugarcoated anything. He says it this way in James chapter 4. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge. Only one. Turn to your neighbor and say, you are not him. <laughs> the one who is able to save and to destroy but who are you to judge your neighbor? Bottom line, guys, here again, we keep coming around to this and it's important. We don't know the whole story. That we can, we can make such quick assumptions on things without knowing the whole story. And not only do we not know the whole story, we don't know their whole story. What they're dealing with, how hard they've struggled, what they've gone through. We are in no position to judge. I, I remember a, a sermon I heard a long time ago from John Corson, and he, he confessed. And I think you know, all of us can put ourselves into that place. It's nice when the pastor confesses because we can say, okay, all right, he did, so I can too. For the longest time, even as a Christian, he said, I always thought it was my job to judge him and God's job to love him. And then he revealed to me it's the other way around. <laughs> it's his job to judge him. It's my job to love him. We don't have any idea. So often we can, we can judge based on how we think that, that we, should, we should handle things. We would handle things in that situation, and we really don't have any idea. And bottom line, when we look at this, again, Job, this is, he's reacting. And how are we to react? Can we read this in Job and say, okay, right on. I'm Claben, Job 27. Somebody comes after me, that's what I'm going to, I'm, Lord, turn it back on them. No, what, what's, what's our example, right? Jesus. While he's being nailed to the cross, he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Our response when it can be like Job here, that, that's, in, that's, that's not in the Bible you're holding. That's in First Flesh Alonians. And you got <laughs> to do away with that. Don't read that book. Verse 28, or chapter 28, sorry, Job now shifts. Chapter 28 is about wisdom. And he, he continues on now, and again, he's not even given him a chance to jump back in. 
Surely there is a mine for silver and a place where they refine gold. Iron is taken from the dust and copper is smelted from rock. Man puts an end to darkness and to the farthest limit he searches out. The rock in gloom and deep shadow. He sinks a shaft far from habitation, forgotten by the foot. They hang and swing to and fro far from men. He's talking about how how men will just drill down into the earth and go down as far as they can get to find gold and silver and copper. The earth, from it, the earth from it comes food and underneath it is turned up as fire. Its rocks are a source of sapphires, of sapphires and its dust contains gold. The path no bird of prey knows, nor has the falcon's eye caught sight of it. Again, going subterranean. The proud beasts have not trodden it, nor has the fierce lion passed over it. He puts his hand on the flint. He overturns the mountain at its base. The man will do anything to get to gold and to silver, digging up mountains, going wherever that they can. He hews out channels through the rocks and his eye sees and his eye sees anything precious. He dams up the streams from flowing, and what is hidden he brings out to light. And again, man will go to any lengths for material and financial gain is kind of what he's talking about here. Even back in this time, you know, the gold and silver and precious gems and those types of things, digging into rock and digging down. His point is now, but, verse 12, where can wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its value, nor is it found in the land of the living. The deep says, it's not in me. The sea says, it's not with me. Pure gold cannot be given in exchange for it, nor can silver be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or sapphire. Gold or glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for articles of fine gold. Coral and crystal are not to be mentioned. And the acquisition of wisdom is above that of pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued with pure gold. As much energy as man puts into finding gold and silver and precious stones, no matter how much of it you acquire, you cannot get wisdom. And Job's emphasis here is that the same of the same of Solomon, that wisdom far exceeds anything monetary, anything that we could come up with financially or materially. Solomon, the wisest man ever writ, ever lived, wrote the Proverbs. Proverbs two says this, beginning in verse one: "My son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom." Incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity guarding the paths of justice, and he preserves the way of his godly ones. Then you will discern righteousness and justice and equality and every good course. For wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. 
Discretion will guard you. Understanding will watch over you. The first three chapters of Proverbs and throughout Proverbs, but really focusing again on wisdom and the value of wisdom and how important wisdom is and understanding. And I think it's interesting because we all, we all, if we're going to go around the room, how many of us want wisdom? I mean, we'd all, you know, yeah, of course I want that, but at what cost? At how important is that? I mean, as, as Solomon's laying out, and Job tells us there, if, if, if any of us knew that we had a million dollars worth of gold buried in our backyard, how many of you would stop before you found it? <laughs> and you'd keep digging, and you'd keep digging, and you'd keep digging because you knew it was there. I heard it was said, a story was told of, of Socrates and one of his students that had come up to him and had asked him for wisdom. And he said, how desperately do you want wisdom? And he says, oh, I want it more than anything. So he takes him out to the, to the, the shore of the, of the lake, and they're up to, up to their, about their chest in water, and he grabs the man, and he plunges him under the water, and he holds him underwater for 30 seconds. And he finally pulls him up, and he says, what do you desire? What do you desire more than anything? And he says, wisdom, and he plunges him back under the water again. And he holds him underwater for 30 seconds again, takes him up. What do you want more than anything? Wisdom. He plunges him back underwater. Finally, this time he pulls him up after 40 seconds and he, what do you desire? Air. As soon as you desire wisdom, as much as you desired that breath, you'll have it. And it's just like, you know, wow. So much of the time we say, Lord, I want to understand this. I want to know this. I, I want to know more about you. I want to, I want to understand. And yet, how many of us Stop. Because we don't want to go through. Turn with me to James, the book of James, chapter 1. James, chapter 1. Any of you know where I'm going with this, but go anyway. Because I don't think you do. The Bible tells us, verse 5, if we lack wisdom, what are we supposed to do? Ask, Okay. Let's look at that. But if anyone of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Okay, if you've been around Calvary Chapel Surprise for a while, you know that I wasn't an English major in school, but any, lately, I just love conjunctions, right? The ties together to two things. What does verse five start with? But a conjunction, that means what he's saying right there is directly correlated in context to what he just said. Notice, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, Understand that what Paul is, what, what James is telling us here in context is that the wisdom that we're asking for and that the wisdom that Job needs in, back in our study is the wisdom to be able to say, Lord, what is it that you're doing? I want to see things from your perspective. When we're going through trials and we're going through difficulties and we're going through things that don't make sense, the wisdom that we need to ask for and that the Lord loves to pour out to us is that that says, Lord, 
I want to see it from your perspective. I want to understand that there's a greater work that's going on than my little, my little perspective. All I can see is this level here, but God, you are an eternal God. You, are, you have eternal purposes in mind. And we can, we can lose sight of that. And we, we can read, continue reading on the verses there where it says, you know, it, but you must ask in faith without doubting. And anybody doubt in those prayers at times? Understand that what that's saying is don't give up. <laughs> Keep asking. Keep praying. Keep seeking. Again, remember, Jesus, Jesus responds to faith in him. It doesn't have to be great faith in him. It just needs to be faith in him. Faith is no greater than the object of our faith. And if our faith is in Jesus, remember, he healed the, the, the boy's, the, the father's son who came to him and asked him to heal him. And he said, do you believe? He said, I believe, but help my unbelief. Jesus didn't say, come back when you have greater faith. He says, that little faith that you have in me, your son is healed. He says, it's a faith the size of a mustard seed. Keep asking, keep seeking. But don't, don't doubt, don't be back and forth and wishy-washy because the Lord, the answer you get might not be the one you're looking for. But understand that it's, that it's God's purpose. And as he reveals that to us, and as we step out and we follow in faith, back to our, back to our study in Job, Job is saying that kind of wisdom and understanding that God desires to give to us. That's God's heart that we, we understand that. That kind of wisdom is worth more than all the gold in the world. Every, everything that you could possibly accumulate financially or materially pales in comparison to being able to say, oh, Lord, I understand. Verse 23, or I'm sorry, verse 20. Where then does wisdom come from? And we understand that it comes from above. And where is the place of understanding? Thus it is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the sky. Abaddon and death say, with our ears we have heard a report of it, but we still don't know it, where it is. God understands its way and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and he sees everything under the heavens. Again, there it is. God sees things that we don't. He knows, he, he knows the beginning from the end. He is the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. When he imparted weight to the wind and meted out the waters by measure. Again, here's another example in Job. And as I mentioned, this is, this is the first part of, of history that we have after, after Genesis. We're looking at, you know, time of Abraham here. And notice, he imparted weight to the wind. It wasn't until just a few hundred years ago that science, scientists figured that out, barometric, barometric and atmospheric pressure, that wind and air actually has weight. <laughs> Here it is. Job knew. He sees everything under the heavens. He imparted weight to the wind. He meted out the waters by measure. He set a limit for the rain. If you weren't here last time in Job a couple of weeks ago, really cool Facts about rain that, again, baffle scientists' minds, but it's all in God's plan. And, of course, for the thunderbolt, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And to man he said, behold, the fear of the Lord, that 
is wisdom. And, depart, and to depart from evil is understanding. The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. Again, not cowering fear, but reverence and awe. And again, submission to God Almighty. In that comes wisdom. I, got, I saw this today, this quote that from Charles Spurgeon. It says, wisdom is the right use of knowledge. To know is not to be wise. Many men know a great deal and are all the greater fools for it. There is no fool so great a fool as a knowing fool. But to know how to use knowledge is to have wisdom. Isn't that what Paul said in Romans chapter 1? Speaking of those who have knowledge but become foolish because of it. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. Every atheist has to fight like crazy the truth that God has placed inside of every human being. God made it evident, made it as plain as the nose on their face, and yet they have to deny that. They have to fight through that. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in, in form of corruptible man, birds, four-footed animals, crawling creatures, basically, again, worshiping themselves. I'm sure you all heard that Stephen Hawking passed away yesterday. And he is what the world looks at as one of the most brilliant minds of our time. And he was a brilliant man. Un, I mean, unbelievable things that he came up with mathematically and everything. But how, how, how he, how I, my heart grieves for him. Because as smart as he was, he now realizes and he will know eternally what a fool he was. Because he's now knows that everything that he stood against as, as a, against a creator, against a God, he now knows. And I, put the, I, I gathered a couple of, of his quotes, and again, not to, not to make sport of him, but to point out again the point that we're making here. Because here is one of the most brilliant men of our times, and he's not alone. But the existence of everything, of all things, the existence of everything, there's only three possibilities. Number one is it always existed. That's, that's the first possibility. But virtually no one believes that anymore in the scientific community or anywhere, that, it, that it's always existed. Science has proven that that's not true. And Stephen Hawking himself said, almost everyone believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning. Interesting. 
All he had to do was read Genesis 1-1 and he could have gotten that. <laughs> Didn't have to go to school to learn that. You just read it. That, that's what the Bible says. So that's first possibility, but everybody for the most part rules that out. Second possibility is it created itself, which is ridiculous. It would have to exist and not exist at the same time in order to create itself. But Stephen Hawking again. Because there is a law such as gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Spontaneous creation is the reason there is something rather than nothing, why the universe exists, why we exist. It is not necessary to invoke God to light the blue touch paper and set the universe going. He says, well, gravity proves that nothing could create something. I don't care how smart you think you are. That doesn't make any sense. Because if there's nothing, there's not gravity. The, the person who wrote this, this book or this article on him goes on to say this. So I'm not quoting Hawking now, but this is, this is the reasoning. Hear this. Instead, instead of putting his trust, faith in God, Hawking puts his faith into a form of string theory called M-theory, which hopes to present a unified theory in 11 dimensions that can account for every type of physical behavior. However, theorist Edward Witten believes that a formulation of M-theory will require an entirely new mathematical language to be developed. Okay, so we'll find something that's so ridiculously crazy, makes no sense at all, that we'll say that it's, it, it, it appears in 11 dimensions and we're going to have to create our own new math to prove it. As long as we don't have to admit there's a God. Once there was nothing, and nothing turned itself into something. Can you, can you give me an example of where we could use that anywhere else? Try that in a court of law. <laughs> I know my DNA was there. Must have created itself. I'm guessing you're not going to get away with that. Even if you could still call Stephen Hawking to the stand. He also said the universe and the laws of physics seem to be, have been specifically designed for us. Seems to be. If any one of about 40 physical qualities had more than slightly different values, life as we know it could not exist. 40 different things have to be exactly the way that they are or we could not exist. Not that we'd exist in a different form. We couldn't exist at all. Either atoms would not be stable or they wouldn't combine into molecules or stars wouldn't form heavier elements or the universe would collapse before life could develop and so on from his own lips. So not, did it, not only did it inexplicably create itself, it randomly did it perfectly. Guys, the only other way. It either, it either existed forever, it created itself, or God created it. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Our, our society continues to, to 
put this absolute lie as fact, evolution and all of this stuff. I mean, it, 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 it's, it can be disproven without hardly even trying. And yet it continues to be, continues to be put out there. And I, I'm passionate about it because it bothers me that even part of the church has gotten to the point where they say, you know, okay, well, let's give a little. Let's, 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 creation and evolution can, can coexist. So they, they invent this thing called the gap theory that says in between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, there's billions of years so that we can all live happily ever after. No, we, no, we don't. Anyway. The fear of the Lord, that's wisdom. Almighty, all-powerful, all-eternal creator God. Who created God? Nobody. He's been here forever. What's the first thing he created? Time. Before that, outside, no time. Perfectly existent, the triune God. Didn't need us, by the way. And God created. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. A little over 6,000 years ago. He created a mature earth. If, you know, how old was Adam when he was created? One second. One second later, he was a second old. Yeah, well, we looked 30. Okay. He created a mature man. He created a mature earth. Anyway, chapter 29, let's, let's move on. And Job again took up his discourse saying, there's, there's that phrase again. <laughs> Not even going to give him a chance to respond. Fear the Lord, that's wisdom. Oh, that I were as in, as in months gone by, as in the days when God watched over me. He, he's, he's, he's reminiscing. He's, he's looking back. Oh, man, those, those good old days <laughs> when, when God watched over me. When his lamp shone over my head, and by his light I walked through darkness. I was in the prime of my days when the friendship of God was over my tent. The prime, the prime of my days, the, the, the good old days. Heard it said that the best way to remember the good old days is if you have a bad memory and a good imagination. But Job didn't need either. He's remembering the way things really were. And it's good to remember. We, we should remember. We should think back. Again, remember the things that, that God has, has done in our lives to rescue us. But don't get stuck there. Don't get stuck in the past. God wants to use you here and now. People say, man, remember back when? Remember those days? Remember that? Yeah, yeah, that's great. But what about today? God, God's got plans for today. When my friendship when the friendship of God was over my tent, notice he's going to go through and talk about a lot of things that were in the, in the past. And, you know, again, his, his family and everything that he lost, but he misses that, that intimacy with the Lord. When the Lord was yet with me, and he still is, and he's always with us, and we understand that even if we don't feel it at times. We know that that's the case here with Job. God is watching over him. God's protecting him. God's not allowing certain things to go, and God will again bless him. And my children were around me when my steps were bathed in butter and the rocks poured out for me streams of oil. 
We have a tendency to remember things way better than they were at times too. Remember, remember the Israelites when they were out in, out in the desert. Oh, if we were only back in Egypt where they had the garlic. Yeah, remember the garlic? And the whips and the bricks and everything. When I went out to the gate of the city, when I took my seat in the square, the young men saw me and hid themselves and the old men rose and stood. The, the respect that he garnered at that time, even the, it was, that was unheard of at that time for, for your elders to rise to you. You were to rise to your elders, but he was so respected that, that even, even those that were older than him arose and stood in his presence. The princes stopped talking and put their hands to their mouths. The voice, the voice of the nobles was hushed and the tongue stuck to their palate. For when the ear heard, it called me blessed. And when the eye saw, it gave witness of when he would speak, people, people, you know, remember that old commercial E.F. Hutton, when E.F. Hutton talked, you know, when Job talked, people listened. Because I delivered the poor who cried out for help. Again, the, here he's going to go into all of the things. And he's not bragging here. He's just saying, this is, this is life. And remember, back, back a few chapters ago, I forget who it was, but one of the, one of the, the three stooges was call, saying that you're in this problem because, because you took advantage of people, because you didn't help out people, because you're always looking out for yourself. Here he's giving his defense. Because I delivered the poor who cried for help. And the orphan who had no helper, I was there to help them. The blessing of the one ready to perish came upon me, and I made the wet widow's heart sing for joy. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy, and I investigated the case which I did not know. I searched out the truth when people, when people were being unjustly treated and unjustly charged. I searched out the truth. And then he says, I broke the jaws of the wicked and snatched the prey from their teeth. Again, using imagery there that I didn't allow the, the wicked and the oppressor to take advantage of the weak. Then I thought, I shall die in my nest. I shall multiply my days as the sand. My root is spread out to the waters and the dew, the dew lies all night on my branch. My glory is ever with me and my bow is renewed in my hand. When all of this was going on, I thought, man, everything was going to, I was going to live to be an old man. Everything was going to be great. To me, they listened and waited and kept silent for my counsel. After my words, they did not speak again, and my speech dropped on them. Does the mic drop there? They were listening to me. What I said, I everybody. Oh. They waited for me as for the rain and opened their mouth as for the spring rain. I smiled on them. And here again, this great guy, he's helping all this. Look at this. I smiled on them. When they did not believe and the light of my face, they did not cast down. He was, he was a friendly, loving guy. I chose a way for them and sat as chief and dwelt as king among the troops as one who comforted the mourners. So he's, he's reminiscing now, but notice verse 30. But now those younger than me, those younger than I mock me. The fathers I disdained to put with my dogs, the dogs of my flock. Now, not only do the older people not respect me and the young people's 
younger people give me respect. The young ones mock me and their fathers, those that were, those that were so low I wouldn't even trust with the dogs of my sheep, much less my sheep, they're, they're mocking me. Indeed, what good was the strength of, of their hands to me? Vigor had perished from them. From want and famine they are gaunt, who gnaw the dry ground, the night in waste and desolation, who pluck mallow by the bushes, whose food is the root of the broom shrub. He's talking about these. These are like, these are the, the lowest of the low is what he's saying, and even they are mocking him. They are driven from the community. They shout against them as a thief so that they dwell in dreadful valleys and holes of the earth and of the rocks. Among the bushes they cry out, under the nettles they are gathered together. Fools, even those without a name, they were, scourged, they were scourged from the land. So even them are mocking me. And now I have become their taunt. I've become even a byword to them. They abhor me and stand aloof from me. And they do not refrain from spitting at my face. That is the biggest insult in that time, to spit at someone. So they're standing, they're listening, they're hearing the stuff that these guys are saying, and it's almost like a crowd is kind of forming around and even taunting him. Because he has loosed the bowstring and afflicted me, they have cast off the bridle before me. On the right hand, their brood arises. They thrust aside my feet and build up against me their ways of destruction. They break up my path. They profit from my destruction. No one restrains them. No, one's, no one is stepping in to, to help me. All of the people that I helped, everybody that I went out, no one is coming to my aid. As though a wide breach they come. I'm sorry, as through a wide breach they come. Amid the tempest they roll on. Terrors are turned against me. They pursue my horror as the wind. And my prosperity has passed away like a cloud. And now my soul is poured out within me. Days of affliction have seized me. At night it pierces my bones within me and my gnawing pains take no rest. And again, we can just imagine the pain. We talked about the sores, the open wounds that he has, worms crawling around in them. He's wasting away to scale. He can't eat. He's, he's wasting away to nothing. It says even when he rolls around at night, his bones poke him. He can't get rest. By a great force, my garment is distorted it blinds me about as the collar of my coat. He has cast me into the mire and I have become like dust and ashes. Speaking of the Lord there again, his heart, his thought is that God has totally just cast him aside. Now verse 20, notice he turns now his attention to the Lord. I cry out to you for help, but you do not answer me. I stand up and you turn your attention against me. You have become cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. You lift me up to the wind and cause me to ride, and you dissolve me in a storm. For I know that you will bring me to death and to the house of meeting for all living. And again, we can't, we can't hardly blame him in the situation for feeling this way, but I believe this is recorded over and over for us to understand that it wasn't true. That was not God's heart towards him. That was not what was going on. And again, going back to that understanding that God is doing something bigger. There must be a reason. There must be something for this. Yet does not one in a heap of ruins stretch out his hand. No one comes to help me. Or in his disaster, therefore, cry out for help. Have I not wept for the one whose life is hard? Wasn't I, wasn't I there when others were grieving? Was not my soul grieved for the needy? When I expected good, 
then evil came. When I waited for light, then darkness came. I'm seething within and cannot relax. Days of affliction confront me. I go about mourning without comfort. I stand up in the assembly and cry out for help. I have become a brother to the jackals and a companion of ostriches. My skin turns black on me and my bones burn forever. Therefore, my harp is turned to mourning and my flute to the sound of those who weep. Again, here we have Job at his absolute lowest. And it's kind of hard to, to stop there. So we won't. So turn to Psalm 30 instead of Job 30. <laughs> because again, notice his last verse there, therefore my harp is turned to mourning. His, his, his instrument of making beautiful music has turned to mourning. His flute, the sound of those who weep. Psalm 30. Let's just jump to verse 10 for the sake of time. You can read the whole part of it later. Hear, O Lord, and be gracious to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned me, turn, you have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and girded me with gladness that my soul may sing praise to you and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I give thanks to you forever. He has turned our mourning into dancing. He has taken us from that place of, of death and despair and no hope and given us hope. He's turned, he's turned everything the other direction from what Job was facing. And we understand that we go through difficulties and trials. That does not mean as Christians we won't face it. That doesn't mean there's no promise that you and I won't go through what Job went through. But we understand something that Job did not know. He had a glimpse he had, a, he had a, an idea, but you and I know the end. You and I have the last chapter of the book. He didn't. And Revelation 21 says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write for these words are faithful and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. Guys, Job didn't have that, we do. Job's gonna inherit that just like we are, but he didn't have that word, we do. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we know that. And that's why Paul could confidently say that though we go through trials, though we go through tribulations, as, as bad as it may seem, and again, if we find ourselves in a situation like Job, Paul put it this way, momentary light affliction does not compare to the eternal weight of glory that awaits us. As bad as we could possibly imagine it could be here, it's momentary and it's light 
compared to eternity with what awaits us. No more mourning, no more weeping, no more crying. He'll wipe away every tear. If you're going through it right now, if you're going through a struggle, if you're going through it, again, God will never leave you. He'll never forsake you. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, change that tonight. Follow Jesus. Give your heart to him. You can have joy and peace unspeakable tonight. You can have the hope that that we have, that it's not going to always be like this. Guys, as Christians, this is as bad as it gets. This is as bad as it gets. But again, if you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus, this is as good as it gets. Stephen Hawking found that out, unfortunately. That the life that he lived here is as good as it was ever going to be because now he's facing a life, he's facing an eternity, facing the wrath of God, unless, 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 in the last moment he gave his life to the Lord. We can hold out hope for that. I hope to see him in heaven. I hope that that took place. But if that's you here tonight, don't wait. Give your life to the Lord tonight. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the hope that we have in you. Lord, we thank you that, that you are a God of forever. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. You are the beginning and the end. Your plans go way beyond us. You know what tomorrow holds. You know what you're preparing us for. And Lord, we do pray for wisdom that you would give us an understanding of that, of your ways, of your purposes, so that we can find peace in the midst of the storms, knowing that you are in control, that you're right there with us. Lord, let us never get stuck in the present. Let us never get stuck looking in the past, but Lord, let us always look forward to what you have for us fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Thank you for your promises. Thank you for your word. Thank you for tonight. And thank you for tomorrow, Lord. Use us, use us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a good rest of the week.